Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and I'm back out on the road again for some additional training, which has taken me away from the microphone, but it's got me out on the gun range, which is just as exciting. However, that means that I don't have a regular show lined up for you, but never fear, I always come through. And this week, I've reached back into our archives once again from our old organization, the International Society of Close Quarter Combatants, to pull up one of our most requested topics that happens to be very timely given the presidential election that's going on right now. And I'm talking about our Second Amendment rights. And this week's broadcast between our OS manager, Buck, and gun rights advocate, Guy Smith, you'll discover how to defeat the most common gun control arguments that you may face when you're stuck in a debate with a gun-hating relative, co-worker, or friend. Or in my case, my wife. But that's between me and her, and possibly a good therapist. But I digress. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump into this broadcast this week with our archive library and load up your best Second Amendment comebacks to win any debate with a gun grabber. Check this out. Are you a proud defender of the Second Amendment? Are you tired of your whiny sister-in-law's liberal tantrums about the need for more gun control? Are you infuriated with government gun grabbers trying to strip you of your God-given right to own a nuclear bazooka? Well, my fellow patriot, it's time for a Smackdown. Smackdown. In our free 2AD Smackdown debate guide, you'll discover how to win any gun control argument armed with three questions. That's right. Just ask these three simple questions and watch as that smug little smile disappears from their little face of even the most ignorant know-it-all liberal. Plus, you'll discover easy, fact-based, can't-lose, crybaby comebacks for the most common myths, misinformation, and outright lies. Like, gun shows are the criminal's flea market. Countries with tighter gun control have lower crime rates. Banning guns protects our children. More control keeps guns out of the hands of crazy people. And a whole lot more. Arm yourself now with the ultimate argument winner by claiming your free copy of 2AD Smackdown. Visit www.2adsmackdown.com. That's the number 2, adsmackdown.com. And now, back to our show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Tactical Talk Radio here on the ISCQC. Uh, tonight's episode is very special. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about gun myths. And if you're like me and you own a gun, uh, or you're like me and you own several guns, you get a little tired of some of the mythology that gets passed off as fact. Uh, and this can happen anywhere because guns are one of those things that everybody seems to have an opinion on, regardless of how much information they actually possess on the topic. Uh, fortunately, with us tonight is somebody who has a lot of information on the topic, and that is Guy Smith. Guy Smith is a writer and also describes himself as a songwriter and political provocateur. Uh, he's been a cowboy, a surfer, a computer guru, and a marketing strategist. Uh, what he's also is a libertarian who's committed to expanding all freedoms and dressing down politicians in the process. Guy has a GunFacts website called www.gunfacts.info, and he's agreed to join us tonight specifically for our discussion of gun myths. All right, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Guy Smith. Guy, are you with us? I am, sir. How are you tonight? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, it is very good to have you. Now, I'm just going to jump right in, Guy. Uh, those of you who read the ISCQC website article promoting tonight's Tactical Talk Radio uh, might have noticed some of the questions 
that we put on the website there, including stuff like uh, myths where people will declare to you, nobody needs an assault rifle, or they'll tell you how wonderful and peaceful it is in countries that uh, have very strict gun control and disarmed citizens. Um, that, I think, is the single biggest myth that I'd like to get to, guys, so I'm going to jump in with that one to start. Uh, because other countries, other industrialized Western nations especially, are always held up as the model that us poor, benighted uh, Americans are supposed to aspire to when it comes to gun control, people will often say countries that have strict gun control laws have lower crime rates. And obviously, everybody wants to be safe from crime. None of us is going, well, I want to own a gun even if it means blood will run red in the gutters. Uh, how would you address this assertion that these countries that have strict gun control are safer places to live? Uh, it's bunkum. Uh, plain and simple, there is zero correlation between gun availability nation to nation and the violent crime rate. I can show you any possible combinations. You have countries where there's strict gun control and very low crime, say Japan. Places where there's very loose gun control and also low crime, like Switzerland. And then there's places with strict gun control and very high crime rates, like Russia, Mexico, Colombia, Jamaica, England, Wales, Scotland, Australia, and, well, you know, we don't have time to list them all. Um, the fact is that there is no correlation. The prime motivator of anyone to commit a violent crime is not whether they have a gun or not. People who want to commit a violent crime will find a tool or a means in order to do it. Um, for example, just uh, last year, I think it was in China, uh, there was a healthcare worker who was a little frustrated on the job, and uh, when he got to his job one day, pulled out a knife and killed eight people. You know, it was mass homicide that rivaled recently what happened in Tucson. He didn't need a gun to do that. He just brought a kitchen knife from home. So, uh, you know, this this uh, statement by the gun control industry that strict gun control creates lower crime rate is uh, simply untenable. I'll tell you one of my favorite sources of data for this, and it happens to be my friends over in Holland, the uh, Dutch Ministry of Justice. Uh, they did a multinational criminal, criminal victimization survey. They went out and they surveyed people in 17 industrialized countries. And this was interesting because if you use the same uh, study instrument across many countries, it's hard to argue that there's something wrong with the methodology. And what they discovered was that about half of the countries who think that they're better off than we are, places like uh, England and Scotland and Wales and France and Germany and whatnot, all have higher violent crime rates than the United States. So anyone who tosses that uh, rhetorical hand grenade into the crowd can be dismissed right away. It just simply isn't true. Now the question, or rather the the counter-criticism that's going to be lobbed back at you is, well, you're saying violent crime rates, but is that synonymous with murders? Is it something that includes murders? Is it a different statistic altogether? Is there parity, I guess I would uh, wonder, between, okay, the violent crime rate in, let's say, the U.K. may be high, but fewer of their violent crimes result in death because their lower access to firearms is slowing them down. Well, violent crime rate is kind of the universal measure. That's what the criminologists like to use because there are forms of violence that don't end in somebody being killed. Uh, attempted homicide is not homicide, and that's why you will see 
violent crime rates in some other countries, you know, have different results. But again, you know, it, it gets back to um, um, what the intent of the attacker is and not the availability of the weapons. One of the nice little chunks of data that I have is that I have both the uh, United Kingdom and U.S. homicide rates going all the way back to 1918. Our, both of our countries started keeping very structured crime rates at about the same time. And the United Kingdom, up until the 1960s, had fairly lax gun control laws. You could actually own machine guns in the U.K., but they have always had a lower homicide rate than we have. So their low homicide rate has nothing to do with their relatively modern gun control laws. They just happen not to escalate violent altercations to a death. Um, in our country, 94% of all firearm homicides and about 80% of all homicides in general are caused by people who are running in street gangs or moving drugs. And those two groups overlap, so we can pretty much just call them one and the same thing. If our governments did their job and if they controlled known repeat violent offenders who are running in gangs, we would actually have a lower homicide rate than almost all other industrialized nations. So, in at least in the case of the United States, our violent crime rate is if not completely, at least mostly attributable to a single small subset of violent recidivist criminals. It is, and um, <clears throat> we, we pretty much created these people. Um, when I tossed in the U United States homicide rates going all the way back to 1918, I popped them into Excel and I drew a quick line graph. And I saw what I thought was a very strange-looking curve. Way back in the early part of the 20th century, um, the homicide rate started creeping up, and then all of a sudden it dropped like a stone. And it was fairly low through the Depression years and through the war years and the Eisenhower years and then right up through Kennedy and Nixon. And then all of a sudden it went almost vertical again and stayed relatively high right up until today. And so I decided to go look up the laws, and sure enough, it confirmed what I suspected. That spike way back in the 20th century, early part, was all wrapped around the Prohibition era. And the spike that started in the latter part of the 20th century started with the Substance Control Act of 1970. So, you know, whether you like drugs, don't like drugs, doesn't matter. The fact is, once we made something illegal... We encouraged an entire criminal class to come to life, and they're quite willing to kill one another in order to get market share. And when you look at the homicide rates, those you know 90% that are caused by the street gangs, it tends to be gang on gang violence. You know, this this kind of madness is not coming to your neighborhood high school, and it's not happening at your movie theater. It's pretty much confined to the places where the gangs have been left to fester. So uh, in the case of societies that don't have this violence, who've always had lower violence, would it be fair to say that some of the countries that are upheld as examples of wonderful, wonderfully safe places to live that have strict gun control were safe before they decided to enact their laws? That is pretty much the case. It's a cultural thing. Um, you know, uh, somebody who is, um, say, 
living in Fargo, North Dakota, has a very different social climate than somebody who lives in Compton, California. And they have different social means which tell them what is and isn't permissible. When you live in a very poor inner-city neighborhood, one of the things that happens is that people with criminal intent tend to live in your neighborhood as well. It's been a big mistake in sociology to say that poverty creates crime. What happens is that criminals tend to devolve into poverty, and they move into the neighborhoods that they can afford. So you grow up in that kind of environment where there are a lot of criminals, and government really doesn't do their job to keep them in check, and that causes crime. Well, you go to countries where they have moral structures that say, you know, you don't do violent things uh, just, you know, for the recreational fun or for the criminal gain that you can get in it, and they tend to have lower violent crime rates. Japan has one of the lowest, and they have amazing, complicated social structures, you know, which dictate personal behavior over there. Uh, Spain has a lower violent crime rate than we do, but that's, you know, then again, they tend to have a very uh, laid-back, laissez-faire type attitude towards personal interaction. Here we have, you know, certain places with professional criminal classes who believe that it's quite appropriate to kill somebody just to get their pocket change. So what's motivating these countries that don't have what we would consider a violent crime problem to nonetheless make firearms illegal? What motivated them in the past to take that step? You know, it's a crazy history with gun control or any type of weapon control, as a matter of fact. Um, And it usually starts with disarming your enemy. Now, who your enemy is depends on, you know... Uh, the history in your own country and your own uh, social structures there. In the United States, the gun control industry, which always existed, uh, they used to be in the business of disarming just the minorities. And after a while, they decided to try to just disarm everybody. Uh, in the uh, UK, um, it used to be all about disarming the Catholics. Um, So that's the way it begins to start. Now, in the modern era, starting in the 1960s, um, there came about this uh, utopian notion that you could eliminate gun ownership and life would be perfect for everybody. Um, Nobody with functioning gender actually believes this, but there were enough people who promoted it and sold it that they convinced uh, the proper majority to go ahead and give it a try. What bothers me is not so much that they had this notion and they wanted to give it a try, as ridiculous as it would sound to my ear. What bothers me is that after decades and decades and decades of it being proven to be a failure and not achieving the goals that it was originally designed to achieve, they want even more of the stuff. Um, This is known as Seifert's Law of the Fatal Attraction to Failed Ideas. You know, if you have put political capital into a notion, and it's an utter failure, to admit that you were wrong would destroy you politically. So you can't admit you were wrong. You just say, well, we don't have enough of this. Right. Uh, That leads me to uh, the next uh, subset uh, issue I'd like to cover we hear all the time from these same people who are advocating the same failed policies that if we just close the loopholes, if we just tighten the net, we'll finally get a handle on the problem that these laws aren't curbing but are designed to. 
one of those loopholes is supposed to be gun shows, which are upheld as these weird bazaars for criminals where you can walk in and walk out with all these illegal things and, you know, laugh maniacally to yourself as you head to the parking lot. Uh, what is the truth about the supposed gun show loophole and this uh, uh, largely upheld belief that gun shows are places where the normal rules don't apply? <laughs> well, first, the great irony is that the word loophole originally meant a slot in a fortress through which you would stick your weapon to shoot the enemy. So the fact that the anti-gun crowds have adopted this particular word I find amusing. Um, it comes basically from nowhere. Um, the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics, which studies just about everything uh, related to criminology, has been over this many, many times before. Uh, in one of their landmark studies, which is called Firearm Use by Offenders, what they did was they broke into jail and they mentally molested a lot of inmates who didn't have any reason to lie. You know, if you're doing eight to life for murder, you don't really care telling somebody where you got the gun to do the murder. So after interviewing a lot of these folks and running through the numbers, what they found is that about 0.7% of, of convicts bought their firearms at a gun show. Now, that's ridiculous. That's less than 1%. So the people who are going after the gun shows know this statistic. They've been through this data before. This has been debunked for over a decade. But... They know that there's a slice of America out there who's never actually been to a gun show, um, which I find amazing because there's something like 5,000 gun shows a year in this country, and uh, the really big ones can draw up to about 30,000, 40,000 people in a weekend. Um, so the fact is that they want to try to sway those voters who have never walked into a gun show. And... Um, it takes a long time to explain to a lot of people that so few guns come from gun shows. Um, and the only way that you can dispel the fear that the other side is generating is basically to take a friend to a gun show so that they can see how what a non-issue it is. Well, the, the absurdity is, I know I live in New York State, and here, because of the very strict laws regarding handguns, it's actually extremely inconvenient to buy a firearm at a gun show, because if you buy a long arm, you are going to be much farther away from the dealer who sold you that gun if there is a subsequent problem. And if you buy a handgun, depending on the county where the gun show is held, you might or might not even be able to get that pistol added to your permit uh, same day. It might take you another day. It might take you a week in some counties. Uh, and the fact is that if you didn't have a permit going to the show, you're not going to be buying a handgun at all because that's a process that takes quite some time. So in all the times that I've purchased guns in my home state, I can honestly say, except for one shotgun once, I've never bought a gun at a gun show. I've only ever gone to buy accessories. Well, and that's part of the legislative plan. Um, there used to be an outfit called the National Coalition to Ban Handguns, which then renamed themselves to Handgun Control Incorporated, which eventually morphed into the Brady Campaign. Um, Pete Shields was their headmaster long ago, and he laid out a three-step plan for eliminating private firearm ownership in America, or at least eliminating handgun ownership. And the very first step was to slow the production and acquisition of handguns by civilians. And there's a two-parter there. They kind of wanted to throw every legislative roadblock possible in front of the gun manufacturers and the gun retailers, 
but they also wanted to make it just as painful as possible for anyone to acquire a gun. So the laws that you have in New York were specifically part of Pete Shield's plan. It was to try to keep people from buying firearms because the fewer who buy them, the fewer who become familiar with them, the fewer who would recommend them to a neighbor or a friend after they realize that they are useful, um, tends to break apart what's euphemistically referred to as the gun culture. Um, nice to know that this has failed utterly because in the last three decades we've gone from uh, 10 states that had concealed, shall issue, concealed carry laws to 41 states. So the whole thing pretty much backfired on them. Well, what really amuses me is when gun show season starts up, uh, you'll get those reporters who uh, infiltrate the gun show by going and buying a ticket and then acting like at any moment they could be exposed as a member of the media and run out on a rail when in fact people would go, oh, I'm sorry, were you in line here if they discovered them? You know, they all act like they're secret agents and really they're just going to a public place doing a public thing. Well, let me tell you a fun little story. Last year there was a big gun show over at San Francisco's Cow Palace, which is not actually in San Francisco. It's just on the other side of uh, the city border. Um, and outside was an NRA recruiting table. And I know a few guys at the local NRA chapter, so I stopped to chat. And two reporters from the Oakland Tribune came up, and they said, you know, you're with the NRA. Can you talk to us about gun shows? And they quite properly said, well, we're not allowed to speak on behalf of the NRA. I, we would like to help you, but we can't. But I'm standing there, and I go, I'm an independent firearms policy researcher. Can I help? So what I did, I said, I will go into the gun show with you, and I won't say a thing until you ask me. You just observe, and if you got a question, I'll, I'll give you the best information that I have. So we're walking through the gun show, and one of the reporters, after about 20 minutes, turns to me and says, there are a lot of people here who just aren't selling guns at all. They're selling, you know, bandoliers and kitchen knives and beef jerky and whatnot. I said, yeah, and the Brady campaign tells us that 25 to 50% of dealers at gun shows are unlicensed. And you could almost hear the whole room go silent as she thought through that. And all of a sudden her jaw dropped and she realized how thoroughly she had been lied to by the Brady campaign. So, so they're, reporters, they're holding up as unlicensed dealers people who aren't selling guns but who are present at gun shows. Exactly. So reporters are savable, but yeah, you've, you've got to find the right opportunity to do that. Well, one of the more amusing images that floats around the web is called a journalist guide to, uh, like a field guide to firearms identification. And under every single small arm, the word Uzi is printed. Uh, <laughs> the, no, no weapon is more misunderstood than the assault rifle, and I think no weapon has been more misrepresented in the media uh, in as part of this overall debate than the assault rifle. Uh, you'll get people who say, well, no one needs an assault rifle, the old uh, no legitimate sporting purpose argument. How do you respond to uh, the amounts of venom that are directed at this particular category of what is already a misnamed uh, firearm? Well, it is the misnaming that's interesting. And let me let me get back to uh, uh, the core of your question just a second, but I wanted to look up something very fast. The reason that the word assault weapon was chosen was to create confusion in the public mind. 
uh, Josh Sugarman at the Violence Policy Center, and I have a copy of this document, uh, which he produced when the whole concept of assault weapons was being baked up. In quoting from his document, he and this is what he was using to raise money and to communicate to other people in the gun control industry, he said, and I'm quoting, assault weapons are a new topic. The weapon's menacing look, coupled with the public's confusion over fully automatic machine guns versus semi-automatic assault weapons, quote, anything that looks like a machine gun is assumed to be a machine gun, can only increase the chance of public support. So in other words, he knew that he was creating confusion in the mind of the public by having these very similar phrases, assault rifle, which is something that actually exists and has been defined by the Department of Defense, and assault weapons, which are anything that a legislature wants to put on a list of banned weapons. So that's why the confusion. Now, when somebody says nobody needs one, I will say you obviously have never been in a riot. Uh, come with me to sunny California. Let's go down to Los Angeles where the Rodney King riots erupted, uh, well, that was back in the 1980s, I believe. Uh, Los Angeles was more or less on fire. Uh, the riots broke out and spread over such a large area that uh, parts of Los Angeles look like a war zone. But I invite everyone to rewind their mental videotape recorder and think about the footage that they saw, and there's this one scene that got broadcast on every news channel. Sitting on top of their convenience store were three Koreans, and these Koreans owned that convenience store. And one of them had a shotgun, and two of them had these so-called assault weapons. And you saw this crowd of rioters walking past that particular convenience store. They were burning everything on the block to the left and the block to the right and rolling over police cars, but they were not attacking this one store. And it shows that there are times when people absolutely need uh, these firearms. And if nothing else, because they look menacing, people will take you seriously. Um, but more to the point, a lot of people need these firearms. Uh, I recently talked to a group of hog hunters down south, and I'm a southern boy, so I understand where these people spend their time. Uh, they like going out into the swamps, down to the bayous, out into the mud paddies, uh, out into the jungle brush, which is the south, uh, to go hunt hogs. And they prefer these assault weapons because being modeled after military weapons, they are very light. You can carry them around all day. The caliber is perfect for short-range hunting. You know, you don't need a .30-06 to kill something, you know, 50 yards away. Uh, and you can take these things, throw them down the mud, stomp on them, uh, and pour bayou water down them, and they'll pick them up and still shoot them. So for hog hunters, they're great. Now, and this even ignores um, uh, some of the shooting sports, like the three-gun shoots and whatnot, where uh, military-styled weapons are an integral part of the activity. So when somebody says, you don't need one, I say, there are a lot of people who need them. It's part of their daily life. It's part of what they do for fun on the weekends. But maybe even more importantly is the fact that it's it's a bill of rights, not a bill of needs. How would you address, uh, and for those listeners who may be a little confused about the terminology, 
we can clarify that by saying an assault rifle, by its strict military definition, is a weapon capable of select fire, meaning it can fire on full automatic. And a quote-unquote assault weapon, the military-style rifles that you or I can buy in a gun store, are semi-automatic weapons that fire once every time the trigger is pulled. But the thing that they have in common with their military counterparts is that high-capacity 20- or 30-round magazine. How would you address people who say, well, that's the problem with assault rifles? Uh, once you get past the fact that they're, they're not these incredibly powerful weapons that can shoot through buildings, uh, because the whole concept was one of a more lightweight weapon so you could carry more ammunition, how do you address the magazine capacity issue? I would say, show me where these are being used to cause damage. Uh, when I look at the statistics, uh, I see no indication that these are being actively used in crimes. They're not being used in mass homicides. In fact, when you think about the two, um, <clears throat> three uh, most recent um, mass killings, and we'll confine those to be uh, the Tucson uh, massacre, which was caused by a lunatic, uh, the VA uh, tech massacre, which was caused by a lunatic, and then Columbine, which was caused by two lunatics. Um, assault weapons didn't figure into any of those. Uh, some people will give me some pushback because there was a Tech 9 at uh, Columbine, but the Tech 9, when you really get down to it, is just a handgun with a big clip. Um, <clears throat> let me let me look at the statistic real quick. But back in 1994, when Diane Feinstein was push, first pushing her assault weapon ban, depending on whose study you looked at, maybe 0.25 to 1.4 percent of crime guns recovered were possibly classifiable as assault weapons if you use the federal definition of what an assault weapon was, Diane Feinstein's definition. One of the problems um, with these assault weapon laws is that an assault weapon is whatever a legislator or a bureaucrat decides to put on that list. So another pushback I give is, tell me what kind of assault weapon you're talking about. And when they say, well, you know, assault weapons, I say, well, you know, last time I looked, there were eight different jurisdictions, 19 different definitions of what assault weapons were, um, covering both federal and state levels. Uh, and I've seen lists that go anywhere from a mere 19 uh, types of weapons ban, or I'm sorry, 17 types of bans weapon, banned weapons, up to 60, 75 different models and types banned. So, you know, give me at least a reasonable, consistent definition, and maybe we can have a conversation, but they're not used in crimes. We don't really know what they are. We don't have a firm classification. And so let's go pay attention to what's important, which are street gangs shooting each other with thirty-eight caliber revolvers. Well, this brings us back to the question of the laws themselves. The and we've touched on the fact that it's not true, but the myth is upheld. Strict gun laws keep guns out of the hands of criminals. If we didn't have strict laws, the problem would be worse and the streets would run red with blood. Um, how do you react to that assertion? I would tell them they obviously have never been to Washington, D.C. or Chicago. Here are two cities who outright banned handguns. Banned them. You couldn't own them for love nor money unless you were politically connected. Um, and over the 30-year period where Washington, D.C. banned handguns, 
they became the homicide capital of the nation. They had a homicide rate that was so much higher than the national average that um, not even Sarah Brady's statistical anomalies could hide it. In fact, one of the things I find very interesting is that the Brady campaign every year puts out this report card that scores uh, every state uh, on the number of the preferred gun laws that the Brady campaign would like to see enacted. Uh, they always exclude Washington, D.C. from that list um, because if if anyone took the time to say, oh, they have an A-plus rating, yet they have the highest homicide rate in the country, eh, it doesn't really show that this works. Here's why it never works. Criminals think differently than everybody else. Among police training videos, there's this wonderful footage of an interrogation of this guy in Miami. Uh, he was a six foot two, two twenty pounder, uh, and his specialty was uh, taking purses away from little old ladies to get their social security check. Uh, you know, basically just a lovable human being. So he found one feisty old lady one day who just simply refused to give up her pocketbook. I mean, she fought back. She kept pulling back at him. So he beat her, um, broke two of her ribs, fractured her jaw, uh, busted an eye socket, knocked out about five teeth, uh, you know, just basically brutalized this little old lady. In his interrogation, <clears throat> he suddenly pops up and he says, if the damn bitch had not fought back, I would not have had to hurt her. Now, this shows why criminals think like they do. The end goal to them is ultimately important. And it doesn't matter what the end goal is, whether it's taking more drug territory, whether it's taking a little old lady's pension, um, doesn't really matter. And harm to human beings is just simply a way of getting towards their end goals. This is why gun control never works, because it doesn't address the problem, which is aberrant human behavior. They, The gun control industry thinks the tool is the problem, but the tool is just simply what a thug decides to use at that particular moment in time. A thug will use a knife, a thug will use a gun, a thug will use a claw hammer, doesn't really matter. And until the other side begins to pay attention to why criminals are criminals, the problem is always going to persist. Well, how would you react to the, the the counter? Well, the gun control at least makes it harder for a criminal to get a gun, which makes him less dangerous to you because it's bad enough if he has a claw hammer or a knife, but if he's got a gun, it's that much worse. Well, there's, there's two arguments to this. <clears throat> the first is that you can cause mass murder with just about any tool that you want. Let's take the Columbine killers, for example. They're one of my favorites. The shooting was not part of their plan. They had taken into the lunchroom two propane canister tank bombs. The combined explosive force that those would have produced had they been, had they gone off would have brought down the building. They anticipated a body count of about 250 students. And what saved those 250 kids was simply that Klebold and Harris were sloppy engineers. They couldn't get their machinery to work right. So what? when the bombs didn't go off and those two killers realized that something was wrong, 
they spontaneously came up with a plan B uh, and went in and started shooting people. Originally, they were sitting out in the parking lot and they were going to shoot whoever fled. So thugs, killers, anyone who's a lunatic, anyone with criminal intent is going to be creative enough to find ways of harming people. In fact, I'll, I'll throw this out as a hypothesis that access to a firearm might actually prevent them from finding even more creative ways of killing more people in one path. If those guys had not had firearms, they might have spent more time working on their propane tanks. Don't know if that's the case, but it's something to consider. Um, the other pushback, though, is that with anything, there's a cost and a benefit. Is there a cost with thugs getting guns? Yes, there is. But it tends to be thug-on-thug thug crime, and what happens outside of the main streets is pretty rare, pretty low in terms of, you know, death and injury. But Americans use firearms upwards of two and a half million times a year to stop crimes. Uh, I think the, uh, the uh, Gary Kleck, in his book Targeting Guns, um, uh, came up with the final calculation that about 400,000 times a year, Guns are used very specifically to prevent what assuredly would have resulted in the victim being either killed or seriously injured. So there's a net social benefit to private firearm ownership. And that's one of the things the other side never talks about. They always talk about social cost, but never the social benefit. If it were, you know, what I consider a just world, I think anyone with a concealed carry permit should get stimulus money because they're helping to keep the crime rate down, and that helps, you know, everybody and helps improve the economy. So, you know, they should be getting a couple of bucks from Uncle Sam for having a CCW. Uh, very briefly, you mentioned this before, and I wanted to make sure to get back to it when we got to this topic. You said that gun control started as a means of keeping firearms out of the hands of minorities. I'm assuming you're referring specifically to the Jim Crow laws of the South? Jim Crow laws in the South are probably the most obvious example, and um, they tried all sorts of things to uh, uh, to keep blacks from getting guns. Um, they, in some cases, just outlawed it, and that took forever to get the laws rewritten so that, you know, uh, blacks couldn't own one. Uh, then they tried to make them cost prohibitive by getting rid of the cheap firearms, um, you know, and that's pretty much been eradicated in most places. Um, places, the few places where they ever tried licensing in the South, boy, it was it was comical because um, you know if somebody went in to try to get a license uh, for a gun, you know, the white line moved very quickly, the black line didn't move at all. Um, so yeah, uh, Jim Crow laws in the South are you know the the most obvious example in the states. Now. Uh targeting a specific group is actually an argument that is made in favor of uh, more strict firearms laws, and that is specifically the children. We must keep the children safe, and there are people who say that gun control is good specifically because strict gun control laws helps prevent children from taking firearms to school or from uh, playing around with them and just misusing them. The, the, the commercial that I remember most vividly was a commercial by one of these anti-gun groups where the two children are trying to come up with the combination to a safe, and they're, the one child is saying to the other, well, 
what about your dad's birthday or what about your mom's middle name or I forget what the actual clues were, but if your child didn't know how to crack your gun safe before watching this commercial, he sure did afterwards. And, of course, they open the safe and dun-dun-dun, there's a gun in there, and the message is a gun is so dangerous that even if you think it's safely locked up, your kid will figure out how to get to it and he will shoot himself or shoot his friend or take the gun to school, and therefore no one should be allowed to own a gun for the children. Well, there's there's two flip sides to that. Um, first, let's talk about the data. In the last year that the Center for Disease Control reported statistics, which I think was 2007, um, 51 children in the entire country uh, had died from accidental firearm uh, use. And in that statistic were kids who got killed as part of a drive-by shooting. You know, they were not the intended target, but, you know, gang warfare erupted and they got caught in the middle. Um, as regrettable as 51 dead kids are, the fact is that that's uh, a phenomenally low number. If I remember off the top of my head, it's something like 0.0003% of all the children in the country. That's in the statistical noise level. It's such a small number that you cannot base any decision on it. So, you know, taking away the rights of every American for what is arguably just an infinitesimally small problem is, of course, ridiculous. But the kids who do take guns to school, we have to ask, why do they do that? And there's basically three reasons. One, occasionally gets a stupid kid who just wants to show off. Um, and that's reasonably rare. Uh, kids are a little bit brighter than we give them credit for. In the inner cities, there's two reasons. They're already in a gun, and it's part of what they do for a living. Or kids are so scared to go to these crime-ridden schools that they are packing heat to try to protect themselves against, you know, potential violence. Um, and again, that gets back to a failure of local government to do a damn thing in order to control um, uh, the street gangs. Um, and until they do their job, there's going to be no hope. And allow me this little observation. Um, it's the mayors of Washington, D.C., of New York, of Chicago, of Los Angeles, who are, you know, the ringleaders of Mayor Michael Bloomberg's coalition. The same mayors who failed to do their job, the same mayors who failed to get the violent gangs under control, they're the ones pushing hardest for gun control. I, you know, forgive me, but I'm not going to take political policy from somebody who, you know, has demonstrated utter incompetence in doing their own job. Uh, how do you address the idea that um, you can't trust adults to safely store firearms because uh, they'll cite statistics? And there are cases each year where children find guns at home, and whether or not they do damage with them, they're finding guns that some idiot adults will leave under couch cushions and, you know, behind the painting or wherever on top of the fridge because they think that's good enough. Uh, how do you address the idea that well, it's just not safe? It's just not safe enough. Boy, there's a, there's a three-way there. First, the kind of people who hide them under couches and whatnot tend to be in the same category of people who are, you know, running in street gangs. These are people, you know, who take no precautions and have such a shallow regard for human life that, you know, casual indifference to kids running around the house is pretty clear. 
I, if I remember correctly, a couple of years back in Chicago, there was a six-year-old kid who found a handgun and killed somebody. And once the media got over their penny-wetting, you know, little episode, and people got to dig down a little bit and see what happened, the male of the house, uh, who was referred to as an uncle but who wasn't, uh, had a long rap sheet. He was actively involved in the drug trade. Uh, he had brought the firearm into the house. He had hid it under a mattress without giving it any other thought than that. Um, and he pretty much typifies these situations. You, me, and anyone else who goes down to a gun store or goes to a gun show and buys a gun, we're not of that ilk. We know that these are potentially dangerous and that if we haven't trained our children, we put them in a box with a lock, we put them up on a, you know, put them in the gun safe, uh, we sit down and we lecture our kids what not to do. When I was growing up, I knew where every gun in the house was, and none of them were under a lock. And I also knew that if I laid a finger on that, my butt was going to be glowing red for a week. So, you know, there are different ways of handling this. Given the low overall accidental firearm death rate in this country, last time I checked statistics, something like 640 people a year, and that includes all hunting accidents and all accidental drive-by shootings, and the low number of children, 51 a year, um, it's a huge non-problem already. So I always ask the other side, what problem are you trying to solve? There really isn't one now. Why do you think this is going to make any difference whatsoever? How did we, Guy, get to the point where we're so afraid of firearms and your child can't bring so much as a pair of nail clippers to school without getting expelled when not that many decades ago, uh, teenagers had rifle clubs at high school. You know, I don't know how or why the devolution began. Uh, it makes no sense to me, and um, I'm not sure it can even be reversed in totality. Um, but I do know one thing, and that's that this is the politics of fear. Um, politicians use the lie of fear predominantly to try to motivate people to do things that are not in their self-interest, including not having guns in the house, not teaching their kids how to use guns, etc. Um, one of the things that happens, though, is that a lot of people are actively encouraging other folks to try shooting, and not because they think somebody's going to really love the sport, but if you take somebody shooting, it eliminates the fear. Uh, out here in the San Francisco East Bay, there's an NRA Members Council, and I, I originally provoked them into doing this, um, but they have about four times a year something called a fun shoot. They go down to the local rifle range, they gather up all the NRA instructors that they can, and all the NRA members bring all of their armament, and they line it up from 22 caliber handguns on the far left to, uh, you know, long-range sniper rifles on the other extreme. And then they invite anyone who has never shot before to come learn how to shoot. The last time I went to one of these, which was about four months ago, the line extended into the parking lot. You had to make a reservation to find a slot in there. Um, the NRA guys didn't get to shoot that day. All the time was eaten up with the newcomers. Um, and this is a way, piece by piece, of getting people to not be afraid. In the early days of this fun shoot, I invited three 
very left of center people to come shoot. In fact, I actually invited like 20 people in a group and three of them showed up. And they walked in and these liberal Democrats met these conservative Republican NRA types. They got their safety lesson, which is required before you go out on the range. They shot a variety of firearms. They left. About a week later, this group of 20 people were all together and Somebody said something anti-gun, and all three of these people, without being prompted, popped up and said, I went shooting with the NRA last week. It was fun. What the hell are you talking about? So we can pull it back a little bit, but, man, it requires getting people over their fear, and I think that requires getting them to the range. Uh, fear being the powerful motivator that it is, I can't think of a more powerful source of fear than the idea that gun control is, necessary, stricter gun control is necessary to keep guns out of the hands of crazy people. And that brings us back around to Representative Gabrielle Giffords, uh, the Tushan shooting, the, the Virginia Tech shooting, and this idea that you have to have gun laws because otherwise the crazy people will get guns and do these shootings. And since crazy people are doing these shootings, there must be holes in our gun laws that have to be narrowed. Well, crazy people do crazy things. It's pretty much part of the job description. Um, and lunatics and criminals share very similar mental defects. They are disconnected from the reality that other people matter. The criminal will kill you to get your wallet. The lunatic will kill you because he has voices in his head. You know, it is your their disregard for other people's safety and lives that allow them to do heinous things for whatever their motivations are. So it doesn't matter. You, know, you could cause all guns to disappear tomorrow. Somebody loses his nut, he's going to find a way of killing people. Um, just a couple of years ago in Alameda, California, a nice little beachside community out here, uh, some guy was driving down the beachside road. There's this little strip of asphalt that goes along the uh, the shoreline. and um, all of a sudden, he just decided that he had had it with human beings, and he put the uh, right two wheels of his vehicle up on the sidewalk and ran over a few folk. Um, we going to ban all cars because somebody might go crazy and kill somebody? I doubt it. Going to ban all kitchen knives because, like that guy in China, you can take out eight people, you know, in a, just a few minutes? I doubt it. So, again, it gets back to how do we identify the problem people? And how do we control them without disrupting everyone's lives and without disrupting everyone else's freedoms? Well, what about the argument that both the Virginia Tech shooter and the Tucson gunman exhibited very serious mental problems that should have led them through some formal process to have been put on a no-you-can't-have-a-gun list? Uh, how would you address that argument if it's made? Well, I think that's a... Uh, a two-parter. The first is, in both cases, well, in Virginia Tech, it was, I think, a clear failure of government. One of government's job, government's primary job, really, is to keep bad people from hurting good people, whether it's criminal intent or lunatic intent. Um, and this guy was clearly off, uh, Chu, if I remember his name correctly, was clearly off his rocker and had even come very close to being involuntarily committed. But, you know, People tend to be generous, including judges, and they let him walk, and he went that next step further. Long Air, down in um, Tucson, displayed a lot of really bizarre behavior, but no one saw him do anything overtly 
endangering to other people. So there wasn't a large enough red flag. And this is going to be a tough problem to solve. I don't know the answer to it. But the problem is figuring out when somebody is going to turn dangerous um, and having systems in place so that we identify the dangerous behavior building and get that person to whatever proper legal or uh, psychiatric help he needs. Well, that's that's the problem right there. Um, if you're just joining us or you joined us late, we are talking to Guy Smith of GunFacts.info. Uh, Guy, we've covered a great deal of territory tonight, and I think we've covered many of the seminal pedestals of the gun myths and, and gun uh, debate. Is there anything you'd like to be sure to include in tonight's discussion that we haven't touched on? Well, just a couple things. First, everyone should lay their fingers on GunFacts. It is a free ebook. Go to GunFacts.info. I've been producing this for over a decade. Cam Edwards at NRA News once referred to it as indispensable. And what it does is we have gathered up all the mythology put out by the gun control industry. We've categorized into separate chapters, one on assault weapons, one on concealed carry, et cetera, et cetera. In there, we list all the lies that the gun control industry has told, and then under each one of those lies, we list one or more facts, have over 500 very detailed footnotes with data coming from uh, verifiable independent sources uh, to refute these. You need this on your computer, you need this on your iPad, so that when you're having a discussion, when you're writing a letter to the editor, when you're you know telling a politician to obey for a change, you can flip right to the data by looking up the myth or you know the whatever talking point they spewed out, and immediately just read them the riot act. Um, associated with this, after ten years of putting together this book, I realized that I had been handed by the gun control industry a modern set of political lies different ways of misinforming the public, propaganda analysis, if you will. And so I have recently published a book called Shooting the Bull, uh, which is a field guide to identifying political lies in real time. So not only am I there to sharpen your BS detectors about politics in general so that you can recognize a lie as it's being told, but I use the gun control industry as my case study from end to end in the book. And I name names and I rip apart, you know, the uh, the standard bearers of the gun control industry, everybody from Sarah Brady to Michael Bloomberg and back. And that book came out just a couple of weeks ago. And, in fact, I've spent this whole week on radio uh, telling the world about it. Uh, and where would I go if I wanted to buy a copy of Shooting the Bull? You can go almost anywhere. Uh, all of the online retailers are probably the best first step, uh, Barnes & Noble Online, Amazon.com. And if you're uh, one of the modern people and you have uh, e-readers, it's available for Kindles and Nooks and iPads and anything else that handles the EPUB format. All right. Well, I believe we've uh, we've covered this issue very thoroughly. Guy, it has not only been a pleasure, but it has been extremely informative. I want to thank you for joining us here tonight. Hey, it's been my pleasure, and I hope uh, you and your uh, members got good benefit out of it. I believe they did, and I know I did. Um, everyone, I want to thank you, as always, for the questions that you submitted and for your participation here in the ISTQC. Uh, for Jeff Anderson and uh, the ISTQC, I am Buck Green, your broadcast director. Everyone, thank you. Have a good evening. Train hard and stay safe. Good night.
ultimate modern combat and survival. survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash modern combat and survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.